Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Workful Happiness Podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Eleanor Mills. Now, many of you may know Eleanor. She was for a long time a journalist with the Sunday Times and the Times. She was the editorial director of the Sunday Times and the editor of the magazine. And she was there until March 2020 when she had a moment of deciding she was going to do something completely different. And she set up a new platform called Noon, which is to empower women in their midlife, a subject that I know many of you want to hear about. So Eleanor, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, hello. Thanks very much for having me. So yours is a remarkable story. You're a hugely successful journalist, and now you've gone to do something that's very, very entrepreneurial, a tech startup. So let's try and go back and, and work out where the roots of this all started. Tell me, when you were at school, did you think that you'd be an entrepreneur? Did you want to be a journalist? What, what did you want to do in those early days at school? Well, I always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to um, to write. I always loved English. I read English at Oxford. Um, I was at St Paul's and then at Westminster. So I was kind of uh, formed in quite a tough kind of foundry. Um, <laughs> competition was definitely the name of the game. It was all around achievement. Um, St Paul's particularly, it wasn't enough to be, you know, really clever. Everyone was really clever. You had to be grade eight on the cello and, you know, a catwalk model and, have a kind of sexy boyfriend you know and be brilliant at lacrosse I mean the, the, the kind of levels on which you were supposed to be achieving were completely off the scale and it made a lot of lot of girls very ill and I think a lot of them never recovered so for me it was quite a relief to get to Westminster uh, there were boys uh, it was more fun I had loads of brothers so I was kind of quite used to that environment and I um, really liked the intellectual challenge of it the teachers there were fantastic and, and when you say you wanted to write when you're young, did you want to be a novelist or did you want to be a journalist? Did, had you formed a view of what you wanted to do? Um, I always, I think I've always been very nosy, which is a good quality in a journalist. Um, and I think I've also, um, I've always been able to kind of blag my way into places or kind of get people to talk to me or kind of be places where I shouldn't. And actually one of the fantastic things about being a journalist is you get to you know sit on the front row of history as it's happening. So I think I've always been quite keen to, to kind of know what's going on. And when you were at school, did, did you do any journalism there? Did you, how, how, did you start and learn about journalism at a young age? Did, were you an avid reader of a newspaper? That's a, that is a good question. I've always been an avid reader. I'm, I'm, I've read, always read tons ever since I was a really um, small girl. And I used to write poems and I'd write um, kind of stories and that kind of thing. Um, I was very English, interested in English literature. I just always thought I'd do something which involved kind of talking to people and um, writing about it. I think I've always been quite confident that I had a voice that um, that maybe people would, would listen to. I don't know. I don't want to sound like kind of horribly bumptious, but I just kind of, I, I like the, I like being on the inside. I like the knowing, even, even at school. When I was at Oxford, I wrote um, 
film reviews for the Charwell newspaper there because it meant that I could um, come up to London and I had a rather racy boyfriend who was working in film production. And so if I wrote a film review, I get my bus up to London paid for and my mum lived in Soho. So I could kind of do that and then get back down to Oxford and it was all kind of on the, on the paper. So I think I discovered quite early on that journalism could definitely facilitate bits of my life that, would, um, that would, might be interesting. And, and would you say that's a good thing for other people um, who want to go into journalism to do, to go and do that kind of work? I mean, is it still available to, are there still local it's papers really, doing groups? I'm actually in a, um, an external examiner for the journalism course at Cardiff University. Um, but it's jolly difficult to get into journalism now because there are less and less jobs, particularly the kind of well-paying jobs. And I think that that's a real problem because journalism is such an important part of our democracy. And I think we don't actually value it. You know, it's actually as important a profession as being a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that, because we need trusted information sifters, which is what journalists are. They, they should be kind of, you know, free or favor and they go in there and they dig out the facts. And I think the truth really matters. And that kind of trusted journalism has never been more important. But I don't think that we're very good at, as an industry or as a profession for making the case for why we matter. So in those early days, was, was were writing those film reviews your first journalistic job? Was that the first thing that you could ever had published, do you think? Uh, probably. My first thing I ever got published in a um, national newspaper was when, maybe this is a, more of a, um, Amelia Gentleman, who writes for The Guardian, who did all the stuff about the Windrush, she dug out a cutting the other day, which was me and her at primary school. We were at Primrose Hill Primary School, State Primary in London. And for the Queen's Golden Jubilee in 1977, we were both photographed and quoted about what we thought about the Queen, which is quite funny since we've both gone on to be quite high profile journalists. So obviously, even age seven, we felt that our voices kind of, you know, mattered. And there were, there were a picture, I think it was actually the Sunday Times magazine, there was a picture of us both and some quotes about what we thought about the Queen's Jubilee. So I think journalists are kind of bored, not made that you either kind of feel that you have the right to pontificate on things and know what's going on, or you don't, you know, it's, and I used to see that a lot in the kids that came to me, that people could either do it or they couldn't. And when you finished at university, were you, were you dead sure then that it was a career in journalism you wanted? No, I had absolutely no idea what I, what I was going to do when I left Oxford. I basically spent three years at Oxford having a very good time. Um, I got there in 1989 and then the rave kind of whole rave kind of culture ecstasy culture kind of hit and I spent a lot of time jumping up and down on hay bales kind of waving my arms in the air and having a, a fantastic time so when I left Oxford <laughs> I was just a bit like oh what happened because while, you, while you're at university of course you have this wonderful um, umbrella of purpose over your head so basically even though you're just running around um, having having fun you're kind of saying oh I'm at Oxford and everyone goes oh that has a real status and then we got spat out the end of it and the umbrella of purpose had gone and I had no idea what I was going to do and my dad tried to get me to be a management consultant and I thought this is the most boring thing I've ever done this is a nightmare and then I was moaning to a family friend who worked at the Guardian and he said I think you'd be quite a good journalist why don't you come and do some work experience so it was a real nepotistic bit but I went in and it was um Alan Rustbridger who was then the features editor on the Guardian and I wrote some of the very first ever pass notes in G2 they just launched that and he thought that they were good and he got me to write some columns and, and, and some little pieces. And I kind of started from there, but they couldn't pay me. That was work experience. So I got a, my first ever job. Uh, I worked for something called Tank World, the world's premier bulk liquid transportation publication, very glamorous, in Brentford. 
um, with an office right on the M4 so we could see the tank containers coming along. And I would write, have to write like 4,000 words about gratings, which are the ladders that go up the side of tanks. So I kind of reckoned if you could make those things interesting, that was quite a good, <laughs> that was quite a good grounding. But actually my boss there was a chap called Andy Burnham, who you may now know as the mayor of Manchester. And he wanted to get into politics. Um, I wanted to get out of the tank world. And I got him a job with my stepmother, who was Tessa Jow, the politician. And he became a researcher and then became, you know, very eminent Labour politician. And I got out of tank world and went back to the Observer as a fixer on the magazine. So, so that's already a, a lot that you've done. You've, you've written reviews for a local paper. You've gone to work for the the Guardian. You've then worked for Tank World. You've you've then gone back. So you're 23. You've already been sort of four journalistic jobs. And and what did you learn in that early period, Eleanor? Well, I learned that actually you could be rather too good at it. So. Tank World, I broke a big story. I've been speaking, you had to kind of ring up all these companies who were kind of, you know, doing things with tanks or tank containers. And I undercovered quite a big scandal, which was about a whole load of trains or, or rail tanks being sold to some other company, which no one was supposed to know about. And so I wrote up the story going, oh, I've got a scoop. And I remember the boss coming down and going, oh, no, no, we can't run that. It'll really piss off these people and they're one of our big advertisers. So I realised then that maybe trade magazines were not going to be for me. Um, and what I also always loved about being on the Sunday Times was, you know, they loved that, that kind of, if you found a story, um, they would be you know, absolutely behind that. You were encouraged to be as kind of, you know, mischievous as possible. I mean, the Sunday Times used to have a thing where we used to reckon you were equal opportunity kickers. It didn't matter who it was, we'd have a go at them. And I like that gung-ho ethos. I think that that's always been kind of a part of me. And when I was when I was a child, my dad used to say to me that I had a terrible capacity for making what he called remarks. So you can imagine our family, they're quite often, often kind of politicians or quite interesting people who come round for lunch. And as a very small child, you know, seven or eight, I'd kind of pipe up, you know, so why is that man being so boring about whatever? It would usually be quite opposite and my, and my father would be dying of embarrassment. And so when I became a columnist later on, he used to laugh, he used to say, darling, you know, how you do make remarks? And I was like, yeah, and I'm now making a living out of it. And, and so what was the catalyst for you to, to join the, the Times group, the Times and the Sunday Times? Uh, well, I had a job on The Observer where I was the fixer for Andrew Billen. I used to ring up all the celebrities and try and get them to agree to see him for um, to do interviews. And actually, if you're running a magazine, whether you're the fixer is actually one of the most important people on the desk. And what you realise as an editor is you're always a fixer because you always need stories. You need to persuade people to do things. So I think that starting off being the person who's, you know, the front line of trying to set things up is, a, is quite a good way to, um, well, quite a good way to begin. So I did that on The Observer and I was quite successful at it. And then um, I wanted to write more. So I kept hassling the editor going, I've got this idea, I've got that, that idea, I've got this idea, please let me do it, please let me do it. And then um, eventually I got a few, I got a couple of cover stories. I had an idea about what do teenagers know because um, I was pretty young then anyway. And I did this kind of quiz where we went and talked to a whole load of teenagers. And of course, loads of them had like never heard of Margaret Thatcher or you know, didn't know what the stock exchange was and that kind of thing. So it actually made quite a funny article. Someone asked me if I'd do a book based on the back of that. Um, and then I did another one about um, generations of women and how um, kind of looking at four, like three or four generations of women in a family and what they'd all done and how their different life Kind of um, trajectories kind of fitted together. So I think I was quite good from quite a young age at having 
ideas that registered with people that people wanted to read and that's the key as an editor is kind of having a bit of a finger on the zeitgeist on the pulse what's what's interesting and that's actually not that obvious to quite a lot of people when did you go to the to the times what was it that made you gay um, so you, you're I obviously was, having fun at the observer so yeah, why fun. they weren't very good at they weren't wonderful payers and i had a kind of job as a junior reporter on the observer news desk um and then I was offered a job. They were looking for a deputy feature editor on the Daily Telegraph. Um, and I must be now 24, 25. And they offered me this job, I think, earning about £56,000, which when it was an absolute fortune. And I went back to the person at the Guardian or the Observer where I was and said, oh, I've been offered this job at the Telegraph, thinking that they might, they might offer me a pay rise. And they said that I could go to Manchester with a blunt pencil and learn to become a proper news reporter on the Manchester Evening News. And they'd pay me like 18000 I think at that point I was like, mm, I don't think so. So I went to the Daily Telegraph as the deputy feature editor and I bought myself a sports car. It was really exciting. I had a two-seater Mazda MX-5. I thought I was the bee's knees. And so I kind of went on from there. So I was at the Telegraph for about, I don't know, maybe two, three years. I was the youngest ever features editor that they'd had. Um, and then I was headhunted from the Telegraph by Sarah Baxter to the Sunday Times and I went to be there deputy editor of the news review and with a promise that I would be able to write and I became the paper's main interviewer. And, and tell me, did it feel different, the Telegraph to the Observer? Did the culture feel different? I tell you something that people never really say about the right-wing press is that they treated their journalists a lot better. You got paid a lot more money, you got private health care, um, they, you know, they didn't treat you like you were a kind of um, part of a cult and you were ju just kind of, you know, you should be honoured to be there, which was slightly the feeling at the, um, some of the other places. And I worked for Charles Moore and for Sarah Sands, who were both heaven. And we had a jolly time on the Telegraph. There were lots of really good people there who've gone on to do really kind of fantastic things. And it was a very, it was a kind of very happy, it was a very happy interlude. And then Sarah Baxter, who I'd known on The Observer, they were making the news review bit of the Sunday Times more featuresy, more kind of human. Um, and she knew that I was good at those kind of human interest stories. She was very political. She'd been a political commentator. So she wanted someone who was did more general features. So I went to join her. And when I got there, she practically immediately went off on maternity leave. So I arrived at the Sunday Times. I had to go to a kind of introduction. They were having a kind of meeting of all the, the key ponchos, all the top editors at um, Clifton. And before I even arrived at the Sunday Times, I had to turn up at Clifton and give a talk about what they should be doing to appeal to young people. Um, so you can imagine how unpopular that made me with my future colleagues. <laughs> Michael Jones, then the political editor at the Sunday Times, nicknamed me Miss Funky because I kept talking about how things needed to be more funky. Um, and, and I kind of, so I kind of very much went in as a, a bit of a kind of whirlwind wunderkinder. Um, and then, you know, so you go in at like 26, 27 as whirlwind wunderkinder, and then you come out at 50, <laughs> maybe not so young. <laughs> And, and you were there. You were there for a long time. We'll, we'll talk about your 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 reasons for leaving and your new venture. But you're there for a long time. And and during that time, what what are your highlights, Eleanor? What did you learn about being a journalist in in you know one of the great newspapers? Oh, I think the Sunday Times is the you know in or definitely in its heyday. You know, really was the greatest newspaper in the world. I mean, I'll always be proud to have been part of that machine. It was like an amazing Rolls Royce machine. 
So I was the I was the deputy editor of the News Review, and I did the main interviews. So I interviewed people like Charlton Heston and um, Mikhail Gorbachev. I sat at Mikhail Gorbachev's feet. I was really young, and we photographed him in his hotel room in the Ritz. And Sally Soames um, did, didn't use. She was an amazing portrait photographer. She never used any lights or anything. It was always done in natural light. So there's an absolutely amazing picture of Mikhail Gorbachev, which I think maybe in the National Portrait Gallery. And that was taken with me holding my black coat up behind his head, and Sally having him by the window, and us both flirting with him because he was incredibly attractive. And Sally got this amazing picture, and we both came out going. Oh my God, we would follow him back to Russia. He had the most incredible charisma. I've met Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and you know lots of people who people say are charismatic. No one was more charismatic than Mikhail Gorbachev. He was amazing. So there were those moments that stand out. And I remember interviewing the Dalai Lama. And again, there's this feeling that you had from him. We spent most of our hour together kind of giggling. We have just kind of on this... It was just this amazing, you know, the, it was amazing, but the unbearable lightness of being. There's something about the Dalai Lama which was just about kind of joy. And I've never forgotten that feeling. So, so having the chance to really meet those kind of greats up close and personal was, was really fantastic. And then I ran the focus um, desk. So I did all the big stories of the week and I ran all the stuff around Damilo La Taylor. And that was like being a general in a war. So you could sit there and you go, right, I need somebody in, you know, I need somebody in Lagos because we were digging into his background. I had three reporters on the ground down in South London. We were tracking back all the things that had happened, somebody talking to the police. So you probably had like 10 different reporters on the story. Um, and then you're piecing together all this different information. And there was an amazing guy called Richard Woods who would pull together the kind of long read from all these different files. And we'd talk about, you know, how we were going to structure it. And I'd be getting the pictures and you'd want exclusive stuff. And then you're thinking the headlines, it's across like four huge broadsheet pages. And I would run the election and the, I remember the US election and the hanging chads and all that stuff. So you're really, at that point, really feeling like you are defining how everyone is going to see this really important story. And then I went to be editor of the News Review, which was during 9-11. I can remember sitting in the Sunday Times newsroom as 9-11 happening, watching the, the Twin Towers go down. And then being in a meeting where they all looked at me and like, well, what, what, what's the News Review front this weekend? You know, what's going to be the story that everybody wants to read this weekend about 9-11? And Andrew Sullivan wrote an amazing piece called Why Do They Hate America? Because that was right at the beginning. So, so it's it's being there at those kind of crucial moments where you know you're going to define how whole, you know, millions of intelligent Brits were going to basically have their view of this huge world event shaped by the, the, the decisions that were made in that room. And at that point, and I don't think that's true of newspapers now, because the readership's not the same. But back in the, you know, in 2001 over 9-11 that there was no kind of internet, there wasn't really social media. So people really did get their news from newspapers and you really set the agenda. And that was an amazingly heady thing. I would have been in my early, I would have been 30. So to be sitting there on that juggernaut, being part of those decisions felt inc an incredibly privileged place to be. And working with this amazing clever team, I editor John Witherow and Martin Ivans and just some a guy called Bob Tyrus, some really incredible journalists and Christina Lamb and Marie Colvin. I got to, and A.A. Gill I ran for years and Michael Winner and we had a ball, you know, and there was lots of money around in those days. You'd do lots of lunching and 
very long hours. I mean, on a Friday, you'd get in at half eight and you wouldn't leave till one or two in the morning. And then you'd go home and if you're working on Saturday, you'd be back in by half eight and then do another day till 10 o'clock. So it was pretty, it was pretty exhausting. When I took up the focus editor's job, there was a camp bed in the office. Um, so it was, it was, it was pretty punishing and there weren't that many women around. So it was a, it was a man's world. So there was no point in being a wallflower. And, and that was something else you did, talking about there weren't very women around. Um, you got involved in women in journalism. I did. So from um, I actually ran women in journalism from 2014 to 2021. So that was, you know, that was a bit later. It was after I'd had my own um, children. And um, I've always been a huge admirer of Eve Pollard, who set it up. And she's been like a, a kind of real, like, like a journalistic mother to me. She's been amazing. Um, and what we really tried to do there was to help other women come up through the ranks. It's a tough game. And we thought they needed all the help they could. So we set up a huge mentoring scheme. We've helped 500 young women by partnering up. We wanted to create an old girls network in the same way that there's an old boys network. And we got these girls, all these women, um, amazing jobs because we pair them up with the most senior women in the industry. And we pulled so many women up through the ranks by doing that. And we do a lot of research about how women were treated and how women made the front page. So I've always felt really passionately about how the, the media or particularly the newspapers are a lens which is to kind of turned on society. And if they need, they should be a, a reflective mirror, but too often they're not because they're too undiverse at the top. I talked about this a lot recently. So if you have a newspaper which is only run by posh old white people, particularly posh old white blokes, you get a very distorted view of the world. And so I've talked about that a lot. It didn't always make me very popular with my colleagues, but I thought it was really important to think about representation within newsrooms. And, and was it the time that you spent in women in, in journalism, because I, I know you feel really passionately about that, that, that led to your idea to set up Noon at the beginning of uh, 2020? Yeah, I think this really goes back to representation. So I think, you know, even if you're the editorial director, even if you're the editor of the magazine, um, newspapers are kind of the last great um, empires. So everything goes through an emperor who is the editor. So you can argue really hard for your story or for a particular cover, but ultimately, if the editor doesn't want it, there's nothing you can do. And I find it really hard to get, say, pictures of, you know, a cover of a an older woman or something like that in the in the paper. They'd go, oh, you know, have you got, have you got anything a bit a bit more glamorous or you know a bit brighter, meaning they wanted something a bit more. Um, you know, pulchritudinous. And I think that there's a real double standard around um, the women, how women are portrayed in newspapers. And that began to annoy me. And I also found that there were lots of stories about kind of older women, which I knew would resonate with our readership, because actually the time Sunday Times readers are quite old, all newspaper readers are now skew old and white. Um, and they just weren't very interested in that. So I read it around a story called The Forgotten Army, which is about all the women who'd left their jobs to kind of go and raise their children and couldn't get back in, all those accountants, lawyers, all those kind of people, which is one of the most popular pieces that we ever ran. And another piece around um, kind of working mums and the lie that was being peddled about how they should be able to kind of juggle everything, how most people were really falling apart, or a lot of them. And But I, I was always frustrated that I couldn't get more of those stories in because they were the ones that really spoke to me I always hoped that maybe I would get the top job and then it became pretty clear that that wasn't going to happen and I decided that it was time I had this idea to, to do this uh, new um, startup for women in midlife um, before any of that happened I had this idea I wanted to do retreats and I wanted to kind of recast 
women, the later stages of women's lives. I thought that, you know, I'd done a lot around diversity, but I thought that older women's voices were absent from practically all cultures in the world. And I wanted to change that. I thought it was the, like the last frontier of feminism. In the patriarchy, we're interested in women while they're still kind of fecund and fertile and kind of once, or maybe when they're grannies. But once that script is over, there isn't really any kind of a map for women's lives. So I really want to, I felt quite passionately about changing that, making a lot of women feel that they become invisible when they kind of hit midlife, hit 50, hit the menopause. And I really wanted, you know, my own daughters who are now teenagers and the other women coming up behind me to have a different kind of idea about what that midlife time might look like, that it could be a time of opportunity, that it's a great time of reinvention, actually not having so many childcare responsibilities are, is, a, is a chance to go back to where maybe where you started out the dreams, the ideas that you had as a young woman, which get derailed by, you know, earning a living, raising a family, whatever. Um, and I really see that midlife moment as an age of opportunity. Dawn French described it last last week as the juicy age. And I think it is for women, because I think that there's a there's a chance to really kind of move into your own. But I didn't, there wasn't really any of that kind of chat around. Um, and that was something that I was really interested in. And I'd found a backer before I left the Sunday Times who was like if you want to do this I'll back you and then there were a whole lot of changes in the papers and I was offered an opportunity to to go and so I thought I'd do it and I thought right this is this is the time you know but I wasn't I was for only 49 I thought I've got some good years left I kind of want to do something which really feels purposeful and counts. And so you've had this amazing career in the paper take us just through the, the moment when you decided to to leave and set up noon and how that felt. So obviously you found about you've talked about the idea, you've been building the idea, you found somebody who'll back you. But just talk through those moments of thinking, yes, I'm going to do it, handing in your notice and, th and then starting Eleanor. Uh, how did that feel and how did that work? I had this idea. It came up that there were going to be some kind of changes within the paper and which gave me kind of an opportunity you know to go or there was going to be a kind of parting of ways so it was a kind of it was a quite kind of happy conjunction of um circumstances I'd actually been away with a really good friend in the December before I left and I'd been talking for a while about how kind of how stale I felt actually that I'd been at the Sunday Times for 23 years I'd been there for a really long time it'd been an amazing run I'd done lots of great stuff but I was just beginning to feel that it was a bit it's a bit samey, you know, you're sitting in the same meetings. And I think there's also a sense that you get as you kind of approach 50 of, if not now, when, you know, that, that you're still kind of young and vigorous, but maybe you've got, you know, 20 good years left. And it's like, well, am I going to stay here forever? A lot of friends were going. And also newspapers, I was talking about the kind of heady days of, say, you know, 9-11 and all that stuff, that the, the reach of newspapers, the power of newspapers had been waning. It was a kind of good time to go. The reality of the transition was horrible um it felt so weird to have been wearing this huge kind of status cloak of i described it as a bit like a kind of game of thrones cloak all the kind of gold and this big kind of black cloak of power that you wear as the editorial director of the sunday times and it was very weird to take that off and i actually really visualized kind of taking it off it felt really important to kind of mark that change and i was not 
I, I was not very happy. Um, you know, even my teenage daughters were were nice to me because I was I was a bit, you know, kind of tearful and weepy. I've written about this because I think it's really important how you can go through a dark time when you make a transition, but you come out of it stronger. So it really made me kind of go into myself, really work out what I wanted to do, how what my life was going to look like, what were the things that I really cared about. So for me, it was this very purpose-driven um, idea of noon as a as a community and a series of inspirational articles and stories which would help other women who found themselves in that dark wood in mid midlife and have given that give them like Hansel and Gretel crumbs uh, or the pebbles that would help them get out of wood and that's what I really want noon to be I want it to be um, and what we set it up as so it has lots of at its heart it has a whole series of stories around these transformations other women who have been you know been in that dark place and got themselves somewhere better and what that journey really looks and feels like and so I think it's really that you can end up somewhere really happy and jubilant which starts in a in a dark scared kind of lonely place um and what we got through what got me through that was amazing friends old colleagues I mean it's a bit weird when you leave a big job like the Sunday Times you feel a bit like you've died um, I kept kind of getting emails from people kind of which was almost talking about me like I no longer existed because I wasn't in that job kind of you were so amazing at this blah, blah, blah. it was really lovely but it was a bit like all of that has now gone and I think what you you wallow in that for a bit and I think it's a very important kind of mourning period and then you realize that you still have all those skills all those things that made you able to be that person in a big cloak are still there they're just you know, they just manifest in a different kind of a way. And so you just have to readjust your sense of, you know, your sense of yourself or that those things are actually innate in you. They're not conferred on you by an external title and, and the kind of prestige and power that goes with a job. So I think I had to do quite a lot of work on myself and my ego and kind of dissolving kind of quite a lot of that to actually realise that all these things I thought I'd lost were still there. They were just in a different form my brother was really helpful he was going you know you've got this amazing network you know and and actually what noon was about was about saying I want to help these women I know all these incredible people I have this incredible black book from running magazines and things for so long and I can bring together a kind of this I've got this amazing advisory board which are basically all women who I've done things with over the last 20 years you know I've sat on boards with them we've run some pieces we've done campaigns I'm so kind of heartened and touched by how they kind of rallied to the banner when I said I was going to do this this new thing the first emails I sent out I was thinking no one's ever going to want to be on my advisory board why would they want to do that because you because you do feel everyone knows me as being really confident so I thought it was very important to explain how unconfident I felt that I mean and now it all feels it seems like a kind of logical project progression at the time it felt very audacious and like ridiculous that I could even that I could pull this thing off. And how's the first year felt, Eleanor? You're one year in now. I, I tell you, what, I feel like I've been pruned. I feel like I was a kind of rosebush that had got a bit long and straggly and out of control, and you know, or just kind of had slightly lost its way. And what the last year has done is like hacked me back to the absolute kind of strong essence, which is a mixture of kind of purpose and really understanding your value and your network and what you care about and how you're going to use your voice and then having found those very core essential things which are like the green sap that run down through your rosebush 
you know that then it, you kind of repot it you give it some more fertilizer some water the sun shines and the thing goes woof. and that's how I feel so it was very painful being pruned back I felt very vulnerable and I felt massively helped and supported and loved by my family and my friends and lots of old colleagues and all these people who kind of rallied around me and I then I then I really wanted to share that so when we launched in I wrote a series of very kind of revealing pieces which felt felt awful my friend Decker Aikenhead who's written about her the death of her husband and um, you know about being a widow and grief and things she said to me I rang her up going oh Deck, I don't know if I can do this and she was like she said Elsa it's a bit like showing your knickers in public but you've got to get out there you know showing your knickers first and then everyone will say they feel the same way and she was totally right so it's a very kind of vulnerable making thing to do. But actually, when you do that, you empower other people to also show their vulnerability and you engender an honest conversation. I think what I've really learned in the last year is that you have to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. So if you're going to talk about transformation and kind of honesty and the dark night and pain and how you find your courageous path, you have to enact that in what you've done yourself. So I think I did that by showing my vulnerability and how sad I'd been when I left the Sunday Times and talking about that kind of transition and how it feels when your whole world, every, everything that's been the scaffolding of your world goes after nearly 25 years and who you are and that total lack of, you know, loss of identity. And then how you kind of pull all that back together and can then move forward and what that looks like. And that's what I want, really want Noon to body for people is is that journey so anybody who feels a bit lost whether that's for you know divorce or bereavement or redundancy or empty nest or feeling having health problems or menopause or elderly parents that that noon is there and it's kind of will help you through that period of pinch you know where it's really tough and you feel like you've got the world on your back and help you to a sunnier place and I think it's that optimistic message rooted in a very raw personal story of transformation and loss, which has really resonated with people. And in all my time as a journalist, I don't think I've, I've never had emails from members of the public like the ones that pour into me in every day. Um, I was on Chris Evans's radio show and um, I, had, I, I had hundreds of emails afterwards from the women saying, I can't tell you how much you telling your story meant to me. And I feel now like there might be a future for me and I felt so help hopeless. So I think that we've obviously really touched a nerve. You know, as an editor, sometimes you get an incredible reaction to a story because you've, you've obviously kind of hit something. I've done campaigns where we raised 300,000 pounds for some um, children at Broadwater Farm um, who were facing a summer cramped up in their kind of um, horrible flats and the Sunday Times readers just gave so generously with 300 grand in like five days so that these kids could have a nice summer holiday and go camping and things and so I know what it's like when you tap into something and the, the a large readership goes yes that's exactly how I feel and I will do what you ask and with noon it's been like that on steroids it's been a, an amazing reaction that the world kind of wanted this um, re-evaluation of midlife and optimistic take on women's later paths um, and, and then you kind of piece it together and it looks inevitable, like that that's where you were going all the, all the time. But it never feels like that when you're on the journey. You lie in bed going, you know, am I going to make a total fool of myself? Am I falling flat on my face? Is everyone going to laugh at me? Is this a disaster? <laughs> have I gone completely bonkers? Should I have just tried to get a job? You know, just all those things. Um, but then 
if you stick with it and my business partner my, my co-founder has been amazing um then it, it, it kind of begins to fall into place and i love the autonomy um of not having to run my decisions past loads and loads of layers of other bureaucracy sunday times is a huge organization past part of news uk so any any decision had to go past kind of financial committees and this and that and you know by the time someone came back saying yes it was just you know you were so over whatever the idea was that had come up with six months before so the great thing about being a startup is that nimble thing we were talking about doing we're talking about doing noon radio you can go okay great how will we do noon radio you know let's do it or we'll do these kind of courses great get on the phone sort it out and i think as a journalist you're used to that very kind of quick reaction um so that's that's easy and then the other great thing has been that because newspapers have been shedding so many really talented brilliant people there's a huge pool of fantastic journalistic resource loads of people i've worked with over the years um who've come to work with me on noon my old picture editor from the sunday times alison graham is doing all the pictures for noon my great old friend tiffany dark who edited the star section for 12 years at the sunday times brilliant journalist she's she's my chief content officer um jennifer house who ran all the digital online stuff is running all our digital so we've got some really really talented people as part of the crew and that's really fun and you seem very happy you've got a purpose i know that you've taken the work or happy at work test so uh did that bear out the smile on your face yeah, it did. It said I was. It said I was kind of in excellent shape, which was pleasing. I mean, the one for the one area where um, I put only like a three or a four of the, on the kind of happiness. I think most of them are ten. Anything which is about, you know, do you feel fulfilled by what you're doing? Can you make decisions? Um, are you recognised? All that stuff. Very good. Um, I would really, really like to have my own office so uh, at home so that I could have all my stuff in one place. I've got uh, teenage girls, one doing GCSEs, one doing A-levels. So we all kind of migrate around the house, <laughs> trying to get closer to the Wi-Fi or, you know, who, who gets the kitchen table. So I'm currently standing in my bedroom at the top of the house. So I, I dream of my own office. And also having run newspapers and magazines for so long, I love the banter of being with other colleagues and the creativity that comes when somebody, the picture editor pulls out a great picture and the designer goes, we can do this. And someone goes, it, and, I, and you go, well, I kind of want it to be in this area. And then some other brilliant wordsmith comes up with a great um, line. And then between the team, you put together something which is way better than anyone working on their own could do. So I miss that kind of creative collaboration, but you know, that'll come back. And one of the great things about working with um, old colleagues or people you know very well is it's you can have very kind of quick conversations where you, you there's such a lot of shared hinterland that you kind of all know exactly what you're you're trying to do and we're and all if you'd, doing things quickly and if you'd have taken the test uh a year and a half ago two years ago in your final throws at the sunday times how do you think you'd have scored then i think i was getting a bit stale mark you know i think i was um I think I've just been doing this, the, the same thing for too long. I mean, the great thing about working at the Sunday Times is it was so big that you could do lots of different things within it. But I really had, like, ticked most of the boxes. I'd written a home column, a, you know, a, a more general column. A, I'd edited the magazine. I'd run the news review. I'd done the news. I've, you know, done a lot of, lot of the commercial stuff. So I think 
I think I was I think I was ripe for change. I think it's really, really important that you don't get too institutionalized. And, and the problem with the Sunday Times is it was such a such a brilliant paper that there's not really anywhere else to go after you've worked for the Sunday Times. You're kind of at the top and I've been there for a really long time. So I, I knew that I didn't want to take another job in journalism, that I wanted to kind of go and paddle my own canoe. I've always been quite entrepreneurial. Um, I like to be kind of you know, in charge. So I think it would have probably picked up quite a lot of frustration. I loved my team at the magazine. I loved them, they were great. Um, and I miss them, but you can always create a new team of people that you like. Um, and I think it was, and I think also just think the newspapers are a slightly dying model. And what's been quite fun, having been a media executive for so many years is to create a new kind of media company, which is a much more, it's about a niche, it's about really exploiting social media for audience. Um, content is king. It's about kind of setting up new kinds of commercial partnerships, which I used to do as editorial director. I was, in, I was in charge of policing the wall on branded content, things like that. So I know that you can work with brands in a, um, a quite creative way. So we're doing a lot of going to them with saying, well, this is the amazing project that we want to do for noon. Do you want to come in and sponsor it? And that's, and we did that. I used to do that a bit on the Sunday Times. So we did a when I relaunched the magazine, we had a deal with Mazda. We wanted to do the great drives of the world. And we said to Mazda, look, we want to do these great drives. And they said, okay, well, we'll give you the money and the car so that you can do the great drives and the thing. So that for me was a per perfect bit of uh, partner con partnership content because it was a purely editorial idea and execution. They provided the car and the cash so that we could do it. So that's, that's the kind of model I like as an editorial director. So I think what I'm saying is I think that there are different kinds of ways, you know, I'm sure now, you know, if you're sitting at these big legacy media companies with pension pots and 800, 800 million pound printing plants and fleets of lorries and dead trees, you know, you don't need any of that now to set up a media company. And I love the nimbleness of that and the um, reimagining of it. And also I think what we're doing at noon is we're taking a conversation which was used to be on what they call dark social, which is like direct messages or personal WhatsApp groups. And we're taking a conversation which has been quite shameful or quite hidden about how women in midlife really feel, you know, about dating or about um, being divorced or about being made redundant. Just a lot of, lot of shame and humiliation and actually bringing that into the light. And that's, that's a very kind of powerful thing. And so I think that there's a real opportunity in a kind of membership thing where these women can speak to each other and giving them expert we do lots of expert advice and expert seminars and giving women a kind of safe place where they won't get trolled like they do on the open internet to talk about the things that they really care about and, and where do you think or where would you like noon to be in five years time oh i mean i want us to become the channel for midlife I want us to be leading the charge. I mean, you know, this may sound amazingly optimistic, but, you know, I'd like to be a kind of like, like Oprah has kind of rope. She has a whole kind of production company bit. I'd like to do noon TV, noon podcast. We've already got someone wanting to do noon books that kind of noon becomes the place for my demographic to find the kind of content they want, whether that's drama or transformational TV or expert advice or columnists or fashion or that we go across, that we go across everything, that we become a kind of con con conglomerate for everything midlife woman. And and it's clear that you are really energised by what you're doing, and uh, I've got no doubt that you're going to have a fantastic 
not five years, but 10 years and 20 years. <laughs> but, but to end, but to end, can I ask you a couple of, of, of quick questions? Firstly, if you were to um, think of somebody to take the, the happy work test, who, who would you get to do it? Boris Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> you're not the first to say that. And I think many of our listeners would probably nod their heads and agree. Um, <laughs> And, and also, um, I think I think the Queen would be quite interesting. I'd like to do the whole royal family. Do we could do the Queen? We could do Prince Charles. I bet he's feeling a bit worried about the succession. Um, Prince William. I think your happy work test would be really interesting on that. And not not forgetting Prince Harry and, and Meghan, we could get some great stories out of that. Mark. Well, I'll leave um, I'll leave you to set that up, uh, Eleanor. <laughs> and my last question for you is this: Is there a piece of music when you hear it that makes you feel happy? Yes. Oh, there's so many. There are several because there's some which take me right back to my kind of, you know, raving days. There's a brilliant track called Come With Me To The Dance Floor, You And Me, because that's what it's for. It's one of my great favourite tracks. And then there's the music that I was listening to when I gave birth to my daughters, which is by a band called Misty and Roots, which is on, on the Holy Banks of Zambezi. I love that. Um, and Mozart's clarinet, clarinet concerto reminds me of my dad because... He or he played the clarinet beautifully, and when I would I would often go to sleep and wake up in the morning to him playing playing the clarinet. So all of those are my kind of probably most evocative tunes. Yeah, all well, wonderful memories. Uh, Eleanor, thank you very much indeed for being on the Work All Happiness podcast. It's great to hear your amazing story. You've achieved so much both in journalism, for women in journalism, and now for women with Noon. And we wish you every success. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work. <music>